0: We like people who are like us, don't we? Most of the time when we think about people and making new friends and going new places, we most often think about people who are a whole lot like we are. As a matter of fact, back in the 90s and early 2000s when this church growth movement was coming onto the scene, the stream of thought usually went something like this. You reach people best who are most like you. So, go and you find somebody that's been married about five years, like you've been married. You go and find somebody that has two kids, like you have two kids. If you got a boy and a girl, that would be preferable. If you got two girls and they've got two boys, you can make that work. It just gets sticky in the end. Go and find somebody that's got a Jack Russell like you've got a Jack Russell. Or if you're a cat person, one of those weird, you know, whoever those people are, go find another cat person and y'all come together and have a weird convention. So go and find somebody that looks a lot like you and invite them to come into your church. And what ended up happening is we had all of these cookie cutter churches in which all of the people looked the same and talked the same and thought the same. And I'm not saying that none of that is true and none of that is right. Of course we reach people that are most like us. But what I fear is, is that we were ultimately letting ourselves off of the hook by telling ourselves that the only people that we had to worry about were those people that we were comfortable sharing the gospel with and those people that we were comfortable having in our church. I've heard it said over the course of my life that there is no time in which our nation is more segregated than on Sunday morning, and I think that's true. But it's not just racially segregated, is it? The affluent go to one church, and the blue-collar folks go to another. The young go to one church, and the older folks go to another. The people that were raised in the country go to one church, and the people that were raised in the city go to another church. Even within the church, there is segregation. You come and you have all of the young folks hanging out on this corner of the building and all of the, the, the semi-young people kind of right here in the building and all of the older folks over on this end of the building, so much so that you can go and be a part of the same church family over the course of many years and not even know somebody that goes and sits on the other side of the church from you. Because It's segregated. And because we like to spend time with people who look and think and act like we, we look, think, and act. Well, brothers and sisters, what I want to do this morning is I want to inspire us through the Word of God and by the Spirit of God to a greater picture of the church than that. I want to inspire us to a picture in which I believe better highlights the power of the gospel and filled with the gospel beauty that Christ intended within his church. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus Chapter Two. Titus is a young pastor. Uh, he is one of Paul's children in the ministry in the New Testament. If you think about it, all the T's are together, so you have First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, and then you have Titus. All right, so it'll be easy to find that way. Maybe a book that's less familiar to you, but this is a young pastor. This is one of what we call the pastoral epistles, and so you have. Paul writing these words to his young brother in the ministry, Titus, to kind of talk to him about what the church should look like and about the shape the church should take. And if you read through the book of Titus, you can also come to understand that this was intended to have been read probably to Titus's church, the church at Crete, um, as, uh, as much as it was for Titus. So we're going to be in chapter 2. We're going to read the first eight verses together. Would you stand with me in the honor of reading God's word? So Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, God's inerrant and all-sufficient Word says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sound-minded, sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands about us. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. So about eight years ago, this passage changed the entire course of my ministry meditating upon it and reading over it. I came through it. It was the first time I had really read all the way through the Bible uh, in, in a year by myself. And so I, I was kind of going through that and I, and I came to this passage of Scripture and it hit me like a lightning bolt. And it made me begin to think about ministry. It made me begin to think about my philosophy of ministry and my my uh, structure and methods of ministry in a way that were helpful and were Frankly, terrifying. Because you see, most of you have probably grown up in church the same way that I did. You, you've grown up in a church that is segregated by age. Largely because of the secular, uh, the secular education model and other reason probably because we really like being around people a lot like we are. We're most comfortable around that. And so the way I grew up in church and the way I thought about church and the way I've always been trained to think about church... And you take all the babies, and you put them over here. So that way they cry, and they don't bother any of us. (coughs) You laugh, but it's the truth, right? Then you take all of the kids, they're like one notch above baby, but one notch below, like attention span, and you put them in a room, so they can just kind of crash into stuff and not get hurt. Then you take all the children, and you put them on the farthest end of the the campus, because they have a lot of fun, they're a little bit noisy, and they can kind of get in the way of stuff, Right? And if you have enough children, you even take them and you segregate them by grade and by gender. gender. And so you'll have the 7th grade, or you'll have the 1st grade boys and the 1st grade girls and the 2nd grade and on, on and so on and so on. Then you have the teenagers. And man, they like need their own building. They need their own church because those people have just lost their mind. They went brain dead for about 10 years. And so we just kind of want to put them over in an area where they can kind of get their wits about it. And once that happens, we'll welcome them back into the church, right? And even with our children and with our teenagers, we put just enough t- adults in there. Just enough adults to referee them and to keep them from killing each other. And it's ideal if you can find an adult referee who looks, thinks, and dresses just like a teenager or like a child. Right? But there's a lot of truth in that, in there? Then you step up into big boy church. And you come up into big boy church, and you get here, and you got all of the the young single people, and they're in a building. I guess we're just hoping they're going to get married, right? And then you got all of the older, more seasoned single people, and you're like really hoping they're all going to get married. And then you got the young married couples that don't have kids, that can stay up real late and do all kinds of stuff. You got dual income and no kids, and they're like going to the beach, and everybody in the church is jealous of them. Then you got the the couples that have young kids in the house and they just always look tired and so they come together and probably take a nap. (laughs) And then you got those who are parents of teenagers and for some reason they all have gray hair and wrinkles, right? The aging the, uh, aging process of a teenage parent is more than being the president of the United States. I'm convinced of that. All right? Then you have empty nesters and so all of them get to come together and they're all crying a lot then you have the golden agers, seasoned saints, however we want to say it, and they get there and they just talk about the rest of it, right? <laughs> they talk about the rest of it. And what happens is, brothers and sisters, we come to this church that we have entered into covenant with one another and we are close to people that are close around us. We may have deep friendships with people that have kids like we've got and have a, a wife about our age and, and have all of the, And we're really close to them, but outside of about three, four, five people, we don't even know anybody else. And in the process, we obscure the gospel. In the process, we begin to miss some of the the beauty that God has placed right into the midst of the church as he has brought together people from every generation and every corner of our community. We have people here that come from Ohatchee and from Georgia and all these other, and we, we come together in this one place, all kinds of experiences, united by a single gospel. And when we segregate ourselves, we are obscuring the glory and the beauty of that picture. And so we end up with all the young folks pooling together the foolishness and all the older folks pooling together their regrets and there's no bleed over. There's no relationship. Now let's think about this thing like a family. We've talked often about how one of the most frequent uh, comparisons, one of the most frequent metaphors used in the New Testament to describe the New Testament church is that of a family. But think about what a healthy family looks like. Now look, some of you are going to say, my family ain't nothing like that. I got it. I'm saying healthy family, like like ideal family, family outside of brokenness. Okay, just work with me here. You know what family, every healthy family has? Multiple generations coming together, right? Have you ever noticed how there's just an extraordinary bond between grandparents and grandchildren? Have you ever noticed that? Like a lot of times in the life of a family, that is like the best relationship that exists in the whole thing. Kids can't stand their parents. Parents get tired of their kids. Siblings always trying to kill each other. Oh, but hey, Nana. Hey, Nana. Just batting those little eyes like they're the greatest thing ever, right? Right? I can remember times in my life when my grandmother would come to my defense and she'd help me have the haircut I wanted. I thought that was the coolest woman I ever knew. (laughs) Sitting out on the porch with my pawpaw, man, I thought that was as good as life got. I would sit there and whatever story he told me, I took as the gospel truth. I think back, I think, man, he might have embellished those just a little bit. I think about Gracie Kate. This past, uh, last summer, not this summer, but a summer ago, we decided that she she was all into princesses. You you know her, you know she's she's all about having the tiara and the dress, like the whole nine, right? And so we decided, like, it would be really cool if we could just, like, get down to Disney World, if we could just get in the park for, like, one day and let her see all of these princesses while she actually thinks that they're real, you know? And so we line this thing up, and we're, we're f- trying to figure out how, you know, all this thing's going to come together. And we're excited about it, and she, we tell her, and of course she's excited about it. But then I'm thinking, like, this is the pinnacle of her life. Like, for a four-year-old little princess girl, what could be better than this? And so I, I start aggravating her about it, right? And I said, you know, Gracie, Mom and I have been talking, And we've decided we actually think we want to use this as our anniversary trip. And so we're going to leave you with Mimi and Poppy and we're going to go on down to Disney World and we'll bring you back some pictures that you can look at, okay? I thought she was going to be devastated. But she said, well, y'all be safe. (laughs) Y'all have a good trip. Because, man, Mimi and Poppy is what's up. (laughs) Mimi and Poppy is what's going down. They're cooler than Disney World. Look around. Look around. The potential for those kinds of relationships exists right here in your church family. Right here. The church needs grandparents, Amen. and the church needs grandchildren. The church needs all of these generations coming together to bond with one another and help one another and encourage one another. We need one another. And if a church loses her grandchildren or if a church loses her grandparents or if a church loses any generation in there between, the church has lost part of the gospel beauty that's there. The church has lost part of what God wants to do in that body. One of the things that jumps out at me most about Titus chapter 2 and the thing that that staggered me so many years ago is the fact that it's so intergenerational, right? And I I say intergenerational, not multi-generational very purposefully. You know, there are a lot of churches that are multi-generational, aren't there? There are a lot of churches that come together and there are, are all kinds of different age groups and all kinds of, of different like, places in life that are coming to, to worship in a particular church. And man, that's good and that's exciting, but they're not intergenerational. And what I mean by that is there's no real bond. There's no real friendship. There's no real investment you don't have the younger ministering to the older and the older ministering to the younger. You don't have them in one another's homes and enjoying meals with one another. You don't have them calling each other on the phone for counsel or for advice or for help. You don't have those things. But that's what an intergenerational church looks like. Think about what he's, he's telling, Tim, uh, telling Titus right here. He starts off by talking to Titus. Titus is likely a young pastor. We don't know a ton about Titus, but most likely he's a lot like Timothy. In that He's a, a young pastor. And so he's looking at this young guy like me and he's saying, look, man, teach those older folks. Keep on teaching them. That's how he starts, right? Teach those older men. You're gonna be patient, Titus. You got to work hard, Titus. Be sound doctrine, Titus, but teach those older folks. But then he doesn't stop there, does he? We would expect that from Paul in a pastoral epistle. But Paul doesn't stop there. Paul looks to those older men and he says, like that, you need to be teaching the younger men. You need to be spiritual mentors to the younger men. I love, can I just take an aside and say, I've always thought this is pretty awesome. Like you'll notice in there, he says, all these characteristics that should be true about uh, an older man, right? Should be dignified, should be, should be sober-minded, should be all of these things, right? And then he has all the same kind of characteristics listed for an older woman. And then he does the same thing for a younger woman—that a younger woman should love her husband, she should be, um, she should be, working in the home, all of those kinds of things. And then he gets to the young men, and he's like, "If y'all could just do one thing for me, like just just one thing, be self-controlled. Like just, if you could just hold yourself together for like ten minutes." We could do something here. I just always thought that was pretty funny. He's like, he looks at the, these young men. He's like, you guys are just so fried in the brain with hormones that I'm just going to give you one, one simple in, instruction be self controlled. And so he's looking at them and he's telling the, the, the older men so to pastor, mentor, teach, instruct your congregation, all of them, focusing especially on those who are older. Older men, mentor, teach, instruct those younger men in the ways of what it means to be a godly man. Older women, take those younger women under your wing and mentor them and invest the gospel into them and teach them and love them. In other words, he's telling each generation to invest in the other for gospel good. That's what intergenerational ministry is. That is, quite frankly, a dream that I have for our church family because I think it is stunningly beautiful. And frankly, I ain't never been a part of a church that looks like that. Ever. Ever. But can you imagine where all the generations come together and you have them modeling good works and teaching sound doctrine to each other, living out this kind of example, trying to bring gospel good. If you're younger to those who are older and if you're older to those who are younger, Trying to invest the truth and the hope and the love that we saw last week into your brother and sister who doesn't look like you, who comes from a different generation than you, and probably thinks a little bit differently about things than you do, has a little bit different worldview than you do, and it's looking to them and saying, I'm not going to cliche you to death. I'm not going to look down on you in superiority. I'm not going to dismiss you as being out of touch. Instead, I'm going to try to bring gospel good into your life. I'm gonna be there for you. If that means me cutting your grass, I'm gonna cut your grass. If that means me helping you as a young mother, I'm gonna help you as a young mother. But whatever it is, I want to bring gospel good into your life. Now, why don't we do that more often? Why doesn't the church look like that? I think it's because we don't think we need each other. You see, self-pity says that nobody wants me Nobody needs me. Nobody is looking for me. Self-sufficiency says, I don't need anybody's help. I don't want anybody's help. I'm going to be independent, and I'm going to figure this thing out on my own. But neither one of those are phrases that can be used in a gospel church. In 1 Corinthians 12, 21, Paul says this, talking about the spiritual gifts. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the head, to the f- nor, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Do you know what that means? That means every single generation needs, needs according to the inspired, inerrant word of God, every generation needs the other generations. My generation needs the generation of my children. And my generation needs the generation of my parents. And my generation needs the generation of my grandparents. If you are 80, you don't just get to teach the younger generation, you need the younger generation. If you are a young mother, it's not just a recommendation, it is a necessity that you reach out and have friends friendship and relationship with someone who is older and more experienced at this than you are. It is a gospel, fundamental, human need, according to the Word of God, that we mix with one another and befriend one another and minister to one another and bear burdens with one another. Just think about our church for a second. Think about our church. We've got people here that fought in Vietnam, And we've got people here that were raised in the information age, and they know how to put all of this information together. We've got people here who were raised on a farm with a hand-to-mouth existence, and we've got people here who own their own online stores. We've got people here who've been married for 50 plus years, praise God. And we've got people here who don't know that they'll be married another 50 minutes. We've got moms here who are on the other side of the anxieties of motherhood and we've got mothers who are anxiously pregnant on this very day don't you see the opportunity for friendship there don't you see the opportunity for friendship there don't you think that we might have something to add to one another's lives that's even divorcing it of spiritual gifting that's even divorcing ourselves from the from the spiritual implications that Paul is even talking about in 1 Corinthians twelve. That's just being real life family stuff: grandparents, grandkids, parents, kids. That's like just bringing that stuff together and just real life and saying, you know what? There's a real need there. What if the friend that you need most is in the place that you is in the last place you'd actually look? What if the friend that you need most in your life is currently in the last place that you would actually go and look? C.S. Lewis said one time that friendship begins when two people come together and they say, wait, what? You too? What we'll find out, brothers and sisters, is that there's a lot more in common between us than there is different. Because we're moving in the same direction. We're moving heavenward we're pressing on toward the prize that is true in Christ Jesus. We're trying to to grow in gospel reality. We're trying to grow in godliness. We're trying to grow in grace. We're trying to fill this thing out and press on toward the difference. So if we'll put down all of those things that divide us and all of those imaginary numbers that we've created that keep us apart, what we will find is that in fact, great gospel good will come about in our own lives. And in fact, you will have the opportunity to experience the blessing of ministering to other people that are different than you. I can't tell you, since I've been here, I had the privilege of talking to so many of you. And I get get to be in the unique position in that I get to talk to young and old, like the youngest all the way to the oldest. And I know for a fact the good people that we have here. I know for a fact so many of the stories that you have. I know about many of your hardships. I know about many of your strengths. I know about many of your weaknesses. And I can say objectively from the outside looking in, man, y'all could do some good stuff for one another. I can say that without, without, with full integrity and honor. I can tell you that. But I can't tell you how many times since I've been here that I've had a young mom come to me and say, I am so lonely. I am so lonely. My mother lives in a different town. I don't know a single person here I'm at the end of my rope. My husband is working all the time. And I have literally no idea what I'm doing. And I don't have a single friend that I can just pick up the phone and call and talk to about it. I have nobody to share a meal with. I can't tell. You think I'm making this up, but I'm, I'm telling you, some of you have had this conversation with me. And on the same hand, I can't tell you how many of our older ladies have come and said, man, I sure do miss having those little feet run around in the house. I sure do miss having having kids around. My grandkids live far, far off. I only get to see them a few times through the years. I have a good relationship with them, but just don't get to see them like I'd want to. I don't really know where my place is in all of this. Does that not sound like a great opportunity for a gospel friendship? You have two needs that meet one another. You have two needs that God has brought together providentially, not accidentally, under the call of the gospel to come together and to be there for one another and to love each other. Maybe it is that the very friend that you need most is in the last place that you'd think to find one. Let me tell you about a story of this in my life. So, Megan and I, we got married young. We got married when we were 21, right? Now, some of y'all think that's old. Some of y'all got married like 16, all right? And, and, and then, like, college students today are like, they're trending toward 30. And they're like, whoa, bro, 21, you know? But, but for us, it was young, all right? And at the same time that we got married, we, the Lord moved us to the city of Talladega. Now that doesn't sound very far away, but for me, I might as well have moved to, you know, San Francisco, California. It was like moving to the other end of the world, all right? And so the church that the Lord called us to at that same time, we were literally the only people in the whole church that was our age. The the only ones, the only couple that was a young married couple in the entire church, it was the Hale family, okay? Then you add on to that the fact that we didn't know a single person outside of the church in the whole Talladega zip code. And so we're sitting there, young married couple, nothing to our name, just trying to figure this thing out. When all of a sudden, a couple in their early 60s named Gerald and Judy joined our church. They had a particular pastor, a passion for, for youth ministry, and so we just talked a little bit, and they invited us out to, to dinner. And before we know it, we went back home with them, and y'all, this sounds crazy, but man, we're like watching movies, and I, like, this is like teenager stuff, you know, like, we're, hey, Gerald, man, did you see what happened? Like, y'all, I, before we know it, we're, that's our very best friends. Every weekend, we're hanging out. We're grilling out together. He's, he's helping me. Like, he, he was really handy. And so we bought this, this little house, you know, two-bedroom and one bath. And, like, it was a, in the mill village. It's like he would come over and help me figure out how to fix stuff. It all came, I really realized what good friends they were when February, like a couple of children, teenagers, got, finally got away from their parents. My wife and I are mud-riding back on the Talladega National Forest, all right? I had bought, I had went to great expense to buy the very first truck that I had ever owned. It was a 94 Chevrolet Z71, and man, I was proud of it, baby. And so we're going through all these, you know, all these places, and man, I sank that truck. And not being an experienced mud rider, I turned it off and turned it back in, and of course it sucked water into the intake, and it blew my engine. Now, we were like poor, okay? Single income, and that income was not a very large income, all right? And it was right there at, at, uh, at, at Valentine's Day, and I can remember us like crying and taking the last bit of Megan student loan money that we had and going and buying an engine to put in this truck. And I remember Gerald, that he, he knew what had happened. And we would had a youth ministry team meeting with with all the adults that were working with the youth ministry. I remember Gerald coming up to me afterward and him saying, Cody, Judy and I want to take you on a double date for Valentine's Day and we're gonna cover everything for it. Now y'all gotta realize, I was first year of marriage and I didn't have a dollar to take my wife out for our first Valentine's Day together. He never brought it up, he never mentioned it again, he just did it. And I will f- remember that for the rest of my life. They have kept up with us. As a matter of fact, they have worshiped here since I've been here. And you know what? Those relationships don't come as naturally. And if my school would have been filled, if my church would have been filled with people that look just like me, I may have never gotten to know Gerald and Judy. But the Lord used that friendship to bring gospel good into my life. And I want you to look around and I want you to realize, brothers and sisters, those friendships are here. They just haven't been formed yet. Those friendships are here. They just haven't been formed yet. The potential for you to have a Gerald or a Judy in your life is real. And the Lord has brought us together in kindness and in grace. If we will just love one another with true love, we'll get outside of our circles and come to each other, You know, the text here really is about responsibility and humility if you think about it. He's going and he's looking at Titus and he's saying, Titus, take responsibility to teach your church. Take take responsibility to teach sound doctrine in your church. He's looking at the older women and the older men and he's saying, older men, older women, take responsibility for that generation coming behind you. Take responsibility for the young mamas. Take responsibility for the young daddies. Take responsibility for your children and for your grandkids. Take responsibility for the generation that's coming behind. And just as much, he's looking to those others and he's saying, and you be humble enough to receive it. Church, be humble enough to listen to your pastor preach to you even though he's younger. Look, that's what the text says, it's not what I'm saying. (laughs) Younger men, be humble enough be teachable enough to hear from those older brothers. Younger women, be humble enough, be real enough to invite some of these older ladies into your life that they can bring gospel good about. You know, the truth is, is that almost for all of us, there's somebody younger and there's somebody older, right? So, so in, in all of our lives, there's a very real sense in which we are always to be both teaching and teachable. We are to always be both responsible, uh, take responsibility and humility. That's the essence of discipleship, right? That, that's Discipleship in its most simple definition is to teach and to be taught. And that is the responsibility for every single one of us. Now, the, the, the main thrust of what Paul's calling for here is responsibility. And the main aim that he has for that is the older generation. So I want us to flesh that out a little bit and then we're going to land on humility. So first he says that you must take responsibility for the younger generation. You know, we're in the middle of this love one another series, so I want to make sure that we're anchoring this in love. And how does that relate to the way that we love one another? He says, because I love you, I'm going to take responsibility for you. Because I love you, I'm going to add your burdens to mine. Because I love you, I'm gonna make it as important to me that you know about the glories of the gospel as it is that I know about the glories of the gospels. I want you to comprehend the supremacy of Christ as I comprehend the supremacy of Christ. See, here's what I believe. I believe that you can evaluate every previous generation's teaching and its effectiveness by looking at the upcoming generation. I believe that you can, each generation of the church reflects the diligence and the effectiveness of the previous generation's teachings. And so it's easy for us to look down on the younger generation with a sense of superiority. It's easy for us to look down on the younger generation as not getting it. But what Paul is teaching us is that it is our responsibility to make sure that they do get it. It's easy to let ourselves off the hook. It's easy to dismiss a generation as being too much work. But Paul is saying, older men, older women, look to the generation behind you and own the responsibility in Christ. Own the responsibility that he is calling you to invest in their lives the truth about the gospel and the truth about Christ and the truth about following after him. I want you to think about this question. Is there anyone 20 years younger than you that you love and help in a Christ-centered friendship? Anybody? Is there anybody outside of your own family that is 20 years younger than you or thereabout, that you are in a Christ-centered friendship so that you can love them, help them, and bring about gospel good in their life? If not, and if the heart is still beating in your chest, and you're still able to gather with a local church, I want you to hear me say, you are living unfaithfully to the love that the Bible is calling you to. The Bible is calling you to a higher standard of love. And I tell you that not to berate you and not to beat you down, but to offer to you a friendship that can be life-giving and joy-bringing in your life. You're missing something. You're missing the grandchildren in the faith that the Lord Jesus would have for you that can bring a smile to your face on your darkest day. You're missing an opportunity to bring that kind of blessing into the life of a young married couple like Gerald and Judy did for me so many years ago. Did you know I wouldn't even be married if it wasn't because, I might be by now, but not at 21, if it wasn't for a senior saint that made me his friend. You guys, many of you know Jim McCain, who was the interim pastor here a while back. And he and I became friends, very close friends, and he, matter of fact, talked with him on the phone this week. Now look, I had nothing to contribute to that friendship in my mind. Jim tells me that that friendship has gotten him through, those phone calls have gotten him through moments of depression that I was not even worried, was not even aware of. But Jim, after um, after I'd been called here as the youth pastor, however long ago that was, where he had come back and he had preached, and he and his wife were in my office and we were talking just like we had done while he was the interim pastor so many times. And Diane is sitting there, and y'all, you just—if you know her, you know like this is the epitome of like this gracious Southern belle. You know, Megan's over there doing her thing, and I, I'm just talking with Jim. I'm not, I'm not even really noticing them in the room almost. You know how guys can be, right? And Diane just speaks up and she says, "Cody, when are you going to marry that girl?" Now Megan is standing right there, (laughs) right there. And I said, "Well, Miss Diane, you know I don't really have enough money, and I just I don't even know where we would live. It's just not it's just not the right time. That's going to happen. It's just not the right time." And she said, "Let me just stop you right there, honey. It's never going to be the right time for you to get married." And the next week, I proposed to my wife. Those were not just my mentors. Those were not just older folks that the Lord had brought into my church. They were my friends that wanted to bring about good in my life. The opportunity is there for you, church. He says not only to take responsibility for the younger generation, but take responsibility for your teaching. Take responsibility for your teaching. Matter of fact, that's the main thrust of what he's saying. He's he's bookending this thing with Titus, Like, like, teach sound doctrine and live it out well. Right? So he's saying, teach them right doctrine. Now, when I say right doctrine, many of y'all start glazing over. Here's what we're going to talk about, the theology again. Right? Like it's a disease or something. Because you think it's like this dull lectures of this really nerdy dude and pocket protectors and like yawn fest. But when I talk about doctrine, y'all, I'm talking about that kind of stuff that reveals to you the supremacy of Christ in a way that you've never seen before and you can hardly contain your excitement. I'm talking about that stuff when you finally get the connection of a lyric and a song and you're able to proclaim it in a way that you've never been able to proclaim it before. The first job of any teacher in the church is to be utterly and totally amazed by the glory of God. And there has never been an effective teacher in the church's history that was not. First, totally and utterly amazed by the supremacy of Christ and the glory of God. And older generation, teachers, those of you who are trying to mentor and disciple others, that is your first responsibility to them is to be amazed by the glory of God, by the depth of the gospel, and by the supremacy of Christ. But you know what that leads to every single time? Right living. Right living. Right living. That's why he tells the older women, he says to tell the younger women, teach what is good. Teach what is good. In other words, because of who we love, because of who we follow, because of whose we are, because of our amazement of the glory of God, our our worship of the splendors of Christ, show them what it means to be a mother in the Lord. Show them what it means to live that out in real life as a wife. Show them what it means to live this out in real life as one who is trying to raise up little ones and you're like at wit's end. Show them how the gospel matters then. Right doctrine that leads to right living. We're responsible for that. He says take responsibility for the example that you set. Take responsibility for the example you set. You know, discipleship is most often caught more than it is taught. You know, there is nothing in your life that will undermine sound teaching like bad living. You can tell me about how much you love the Lord, you can tell me about how much He's the number one priority in your life. You can tell me about how your life is nothing without him, but if I see in your life one who is ungrateful, if I see in your life one who is habitually critical, if I see in your life as one who finds some way to take a jab at every other person that they know, then I look at you and I wonder, well, what good is anything that you know? How many children have missed the gospel because their parents taught it to them with their words but denied it with their lives. How many generations have come and gone having heard the older generations preach and having heard the older generations teach but to look at their lives and not see any gospel love or gospel passion there? We have to take responsibility for how we live. Older Saints, Paul is talking especially to you. Do you want our younger generation to be faithful in church? You must be faithful. Do you want our younger generation to teach their children the gospel? You must be teaching the gospel. If we want our younger generation to serve God with all of their lives, you must serve God with all of your lives. At a very minimum, we can look to Titus 2 and say, there is no age limit on godliness, there is no age limit on gospel fruitfulness. There is none because there's always somebody behind us and somebody ahead of us that we can teach and be taught by. Are you willing to take responsibility for those coming after you? Are you willing? Are you willing to pick up their burdens? Are you willing to cross over those relational boundaries? If I could just say something, you know what this is gonna rest largely on? The older generation. And I say that because for a young person to approach a younger person is very difficult to do. It's very difficult to do. But if you have an older person that would come and say, hey, could I buy you dinner one day? Could, could I, we always do this on Sunday afternoons. We cook out or do this. Could, could I invite you over just for a meal? Could I take you to coffee? I, you, I know you got a lot going on. Or, or what about this? Could, could I babysit your kids for you sometimes so you and your husband can just go away or you and your wife can just go away? That responsibility is largely going to fall on the older generation because you are further along in life. You are in a higher status in life. And it's much easier for someone who's at the higher status of life to come to the one who is in the lower status of life for this kind of gospel good. But now listen to me, younger folks. You ain't off the hook here, right? You ain't off, because it implied in everything that, G, that Paul is saying is that you must be teachable. You must be humble. If one is teaching, the other must be teachable. If we say that because I love you, I'm going to take responsibility uh, for you, then we must at the same time say, because I know you love me, I'm going to listen to you. Because I know I'm loved, I will hear from you. Because you know I love you, I will teach you. There's there's a, a mutual benefit here. Mark Twain, he said it like this. I love this. When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. Every generation feels that way, don't we? Every generation believes that our parents got it wrong. We got Facebook blogs now that are everywhere that can prove it. We've got, we've got companies making millions of dollars on trying to correct all of our parents' mistakes, right? So the easiest thing for us to do is to dismiss those things that are coming away and believe that we've figured something out, like we've got the, we've got the, the right code and the right combination that's going to open up the lock for perfect children and perfect marriages all the time. Until it doesn't, right? Until it doesn't. And it's easy for you to like keep pressing on and keep pressing on and keep pressing on. But what you find out is it keeps beating you down and beating you down and beating you down. Jesus Christ himself has given a gift to you, sister. Jesus Christ himself has given a gift to you, young daddy. Jesus Christ himself has put in his church people who have already been there. He's put people in his church that have already stayed up at night waiting, worrying about their kids. He's put people in his church that have already battled through the difficulties and the travails of marriage. He's put people in his church that already know about abuse and already know about abandonment. He's put people in His church that have lost their children. He's put people in the church that have had miscarriages. He's put people in the church that have battled depression and anxiety. He's put people in the church that have went on job searches having no rhyme or reason as to why they lost the last one. He's put people in the church just like that. You don't have to do this by yourself. You don't have to do this by yourself. You don't have to face parenting alone, You don't have to face mothering alone. You don't have to face being a wife or a husband alone. You don't have to face depression alone. You don't have to face miscarriages alone. You don't have to face uh, joblessness alone. You don't have to, to, to face even when everything seems perfect but you feel miserable. Like none of that do you have to face alone. God has given you the opportunity for many friendships to bring gospel good into your life. So let me ask you a question. Is there anyone 20 years older than you that you love and listen to and learn from in a Christ-centered friendship? Because if there's not, I'm telling you, there is an opportunity for greater wisdom and greater discernment and greater glory in Christ and greater joy in the Lord available to you. Iron City, can we cross over all these imaginary lines? Can we stop boxing ourselves in? I believe the Lord himself through Titus chapter two is calling Iron City Baptist Church to a greater responsibility and a greater humility at the very same time. Brothers and sisters, will you be humble and will you take up the baton for this generation? Let's pray together.